Father, we are grateful that you do take notice of us and you hear the concerns of our hearts and, uh, of course, the things that uh, concern us are the things that are close to us. And uh, there are numerous needs in this body, uh, health needs, family needs, uh, relationship needs of, um, of illnesses and cancer and um, still dealing with pandemic and just those things that are close to us. Father, we lift them up. You've heard them this morning. You've heard them being expressed from our hearts. And specifically, we pray for baby Emma and baby Jack and just ask that you heal them. And we recognize that uh, in those in those hospital rooms and in those ICU units that uh, you are the most important person there. And so we're asking you to touch them and heal them and uh, that you bring peace to their parents and peace to us in this body that uh, we know we can trust you. And Father, we also look out uh, at the world and, and see so much suffering, but we know we have a hope that uh, you are taking us somewhere good. You will, we will be in a good place. And we look forward to that day that uh, when all things are put right and every tear will be dried away. And so, Father, we come to your word in uh, humility and we come with uh, broken hearts, but we also come with hearts that have been mended and restored and life that's been regenerated. And so, Father, we, if we look at this idea of trust and faith, that we look at people who have uh, done it and gone ahead of us, and um, we take comfort in that. And so, Father, we cling to you because we have nowhere else to cling. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last, uh, this last month or so, there was another story that actually took our mind off the pandemic for a while. Um, let's see. I think we're on. Yeah, we go. There we go. Um, if I can. This, there we go. Most of us uh, remember this story when the, uh, the, the ship, the Ever Given from the company Evergreen, blocked the Suez Canal and held up shipments going back and forth through Europe and the West and through the East. And uh, it took our mind off things a little bit. And uh, Fortune Magazine called this the ship that launched a thousand memes. And uh, my favorite meme that I saw on it was this one. The satellite image there. It says, don't worry, everyone makes mistakes. It's not like you can see it from space, you know. <laughs> well, yes, you can. You can see it from space. Uh, it kind of makes me think of some of the figures in the, uh, in the scriptures in the New Testament and uh, one of the things that thought that comes to my mind, dealing with chapter 11, is, the, uh, is Thomas, my namesake, uh, known as Doubting Thomas, of course, uh, because uh, he wasn't sure he believed uh, that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. And so he, uh, uh, most of us know the story, that he said, I'm not going to believe that until I can touch his wounds, until I can put my finger in his wounds, my hand in the side, and then maybe I'll believe it. And uh, it's kind of what it made me want to think of Thomas, poor Thomas, and want to say, uh, Thomas, don't worry. Everyone makes mistakes. It's not like billions of people are going to be reading this over and over again for thousands of years, you know. <laughs> but we are, of course. We are reading it. 
And there's a lot of people that's kind of come along and tried to give, tried to give Thomas a hand here and say that he's like the patron saint of, of doubters and skeptics. And that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with doubting. There's nothing wrong with asking questions. There's nothing in John's gospel or Jesus' teaching that, that makes you, they would give you the idea that asking questions would be wrong or sinful or anything like that. But that's not really the point of the story. Uh, the point of the story is that a, uh, a perpetual place of being stuck in unbelief is not really a good place to be. Uh, of being stuck in doubt and unbelief is not where you really want to permanently stay. And the point of the story is that, that uh, seeing is not necessarily believing, but believing is the beginning of seeing. And Thomas didn't really see, he didn't really understand until he believed. He may have seen it, but that doesn't necessarily mean he believes. It's when you believe that you start to actually see. And that's really the point of the story. So when we arrive at Hebrews chapter 11, like, like Kevin said, it's kind of known as the hall of faith because it lists a lot of people with, uh, that, that have gone through the faith. But it's not just this superficial panorama of history that the writer gives us. He organizes it according to themes. And, uh, and, and he comes at faith from different angles and different perspectives. This morning, I just want to look at the first six verses of that, this introduction to the chapter. It's basically just the, the kind of the prologue of what he's going to be talking about and about this, this uh, hall of faith. And basically what he's doing is he's, he's expounding on Habakkuk 1.4, which he just quoted that we saw last week in Hebrews chapter 10. And that is the just will live by faith. And so he's taken that and he's going to expound on that and give us lots of examples and show us what that looks like. And so we're going to look at these first six verses this morning. And the uh, first two verses are kind of the prologue of the... Do you need this? <laughs> are we messed up here? Are we going to do the battery? Oh, okay. Okay, so I just cue you, Kendra. Is that right? Got it. Okay. So don't have faith in technology. That's, what, that's the... <laughs> Verses 1 and 2 says that now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. For by it, the people of old received God's commendation. So he kind of begins in the very first chapter, very first verses, two verses, giving us this definition of faith. He says it is an assurance and it is a conviction. It's not proof, but it's, it, it's got a, a present sense to it and it's also got a future sense to it. That uh, we have this, this assurance of the future, we have the assurance of hope, but we have this conviction that it is true. It's not, really, it's not really proof. It's just that it is. It is what it is. That these are the truths and we believe them. And he's saying about this, this faith experience. He's going to tell us this faith experience is more than just this conceptual idea. He is going, he's just told us from up to through chapter 10 all these things that are true, that are facts, that, are, that we cannot see necessarily, but they are true. And that is the objective truth. And now he's kind of turning to the subjective truth. Of what does it do for us? What does it do for us? How does it affect us? He's kind of going from the conceptual to the experiential. And that's what he's doing here. And he's telling us that it is convicted, it is conviction, and it is assurance. Assurance of the future, but it is a conviction of what's the present. And it's kind of like what, what, um, what C.S. Lewis says. That he says, I, I believe in the sunrise... Not because necessarily I can see the sun, but because I can see everything else. 
And that's kind of what the book of Hebrews, that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing for us right now. He's saying that, that we can have this faith and hope, both the present and the future. And it, it's, it's one thing to, to have a hope for a better world. It's one thing to say that there is hope beyond the grave. But if we don't have anything undergirding that, then it just, it just becomes mere optimism. But the writer is saying we can have that hope of the future, that hope of the better world, that hope of the, of the, the of beyond the grave, but it's undergirded by this faith and this one thing that we believe. And I can believe, in, and people can say, well, I believe that there's this force for good somewhere out there. And, and I can believe that this, this force is, is maybe a personal force, and then I can even say that maybe I have some kind of relationship with this force. But my feeling is if it's not trusting, if it's not anchored in the conviction of the God who raised Jesus from the dead, then there's really no conviction there. It's just kind of a, a positive feeling. That if I don't believe in the God that we see in Jesus, then it's just optimism. It's just a vague sort of wishing kind of thing. And what he's saying is that we have this assurance of the future. We have this assurance of a better world. We have this assurance beyond the grave. And it's built and based on a conviction that we cannot see, but we believe it to be true. And there's nothing wrong with admitting that. There's nothing wrong with admitting that this is by faith. And we'll get to that in a minute. I'll go to the next slide. He then goes on to say, he begins at the very beginning by creation. By faith, we understand that the worlds were set in order at God's command so that the visible had its origin in the invisible. And we know that from the very beginning, from the very beginning of Genesis. But I, I decided to use uh, Psalm 33 as an example here because I like the way the psalmist puts it. Go ahead and see, show that, Kendra. He says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And all their host by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea as in a bottle, and he puts them in the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. That is the root of everything we believe. That is the root of the Christian faith, is the root of Jewish faith. It is the root of how we see everything, how we see the universe, everything we interact with, everything we look and see. It is this, that he is the creator. And we have to do a little bit of, of heart work here. It's okay to say that this is by faith. We have good reasons. We cannot prove it, that God was the creator of this, of the universe. But we have good reasons to say that the creation did not create itself. So we do have a reason for faith. And, it's no reason, and there's no reason to shy away from that. When you're discussing this with other people, it's no reason to say, yes, I take it by faith. It makes sense to me that this was a creator. But what the, I think what the author is trying to get us to do is to do some heart work here to move from this simple mental ascent, this mental description, this mental... If you're getting in a debate with somebody with a secularist who doesn't believe that, that there, there is a creator, we need to go beyond that to say, yes, I believe that there is a God who created everything we see. He wants us to go beyond that. He wants us to have a fuller knowledge of the creator, of the creation we see. He wants us to know it fully. 
A few weeks ago, we were given a jar of honey from some good friends and from their own bees. And uh, it came in a sack when I got home as who brought it out. And I, I know, I can tell you that that honey is sweet. But it's just a mental deduction because I kind of know that. But I won't know it fully until I put it on my tongue. And then I will know sweetness in a totally different way. I will know that honey in a completely different way. And I think what the author is getting at here is that we need to move from that conceptual mental ascent that God is the creator into the, the thing of, of experiencing it with a fuller knowledge. The psalmist says, taste the goodness of God. And I think in order to taste the goodness of God is not just a mental agreement that this is true, but that, that we see it and we taste it and we hear it and we smell it and we feel it. And that is the goodness of God. We understand what the creation truly is, and that is that it is an astonishingly good, divine gift. And we experience it as good. We experience it for what it is. We don't make it the ultimate. We make it what it is. Tim Keller tells a story about he and his wife who go to the same place, the same cabin for vacation every year. And she says that for him, he's all about work. You know, he, he finds his greatest enjoyment working, and he's, he's all about doing new projects for the church and, and ser sermon series and writing books and all that kind of thing. And so he goes on this vacation spot, and he works. He thinks. He, he dreams. He envisions and everything. He said his wife is just the opposite. His wife looks so forward to this that the minute she gets there, she practically handcuffs herself to the railing you know, because she doesn't want to leave. And then when the time comes, neither one of them feel relaxed when the time comes for to leave because she didn't want to leave. And because she's so thinking about leaving in two weeks, she doesn't enjoy it while she's there. And he's still consumed with the work. He doesn't enjoy it while he's there, so they don't enjoy it anyway. And he's saying the more heavenly, the more heavenly minded we become, the better we appreciate the gift. And I think that's what he's getting at. You taste the goodness of God, that everything we see comes from his hand, comes from his, God, his, his good hand, that it is this astonishingly good, good gift. Then he goes on to, to lay the groundwork with two examples. He's going to give us tons of examples, but he gives us two right off the bat, Abel and Enoch. He says, By faith Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain, and through his faith, he was commended as righteous because God commended him for his offerings. And through his faith, he still speaks, though he is dead. Go ahead and go to the next one. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he did not see death, and he was not to be found because God took him up. For before his removal, he had been commended as having pleased God. So you look at this at the beginning and you go, why did the author start with these two guys? These seem to really puzzling. They seem not, not people that really you think about standing out in the scriptures. But these are the two he chooses to lay the groundwork for the rest of the chapter. Most of us know the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are the sons of, of Adam and Eve. Cain was a farmer. Abel was a shepherd. And they were both bringing gifts and sacrifices to the Lord to worship. But God rejected Cain's and accepted Abel's. And so what did Cain do? He became jealous and envious and hateful and cruel 
and he murdered his brother. Now, it has nothing to do with the content of the offering. If you look at the Old Testament, it's a, he mentions the person first, and then the offering is sort of secondary. It all has to do with the heart of the person. And Cain's heart was not right. Cain was just discharging his duty. Abel was worshiping. Abel was trusting. Abel was believing. Jude says that when he mentions Cain, he said, he said don't follow the wicked way of, J of Cain because that is the way of unbelief. That was the problem, was unbelief. John attaches it to loving the community. He says, you've heard it from the very beginning, to love one another, not following the way of Cain, of envy and wickedness. And we know that it was a place of unbelief because he became envious and jealous and committed murder, and killing his brother. And then when God asked him where his brother was, what is Cain's response? Am I my brother's keeper? And John's point is, yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. That's what a, that's what a person of faith does. And then the next person he, he gives the example is Enoch. And Enoch just has one line in the Old Testament, in Genesis. And it simply is this. That I think, did I put it up? I don't think I put it up there. Did I? Oh, yeah, there you go. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. That's it. That's the only thing that matters. No accomplishments. No, I mean, he may have had some accomplishments. He may have brokered peace between tribes. He may have ruled over tribes. We don't know. But evidently, the only important thing was that he walked with God. And God took him. What does it mean to walk with God? Well, it means that you're friends with him. You like being with him that you're on the same path, you're going the same direction, that all your thoughts are about God, not that you think about God 24-7, but any plan, any, any decision, any, any consideration that you have, you consult God with it. You, he, he interacts with you. It also means that when you fail, you get up and, and want to get by God's side again. It means you open up and let him do the inspection into your heart. It means you walk alongside in the same path, going in the same direction. And that's the image that we have throughout the scriptures of this Christian life is walking with God. And evidently, that's what matters. That's what the Hebrews said, that the elders received commendation for that. Now, why did he pick these two guys, Enoch and Abel? I thought about that this week. And I come up with two, two conclusions. Now, you might think of different ones, but these are the ones I came up with. One is, I'm thinking, one was murdered and one didn't experience death. What's he saying there? I think he's saying that the outcome does not determine God's approval. It's not the outcome that determines whether God approves of us or not. Being a person of faith means that we may have to go through tragedy. Being a person of faith may be you come to your end in the worst possible way, being murdered by your brother. But it could also mean that God pulls you out. And I think the other way, the other reason that maybe he included these two things is because he's talking to his readers here who may be waiting on two different perspectives. 
I think he may be saying when he's talked about the inheritance and the reward of Jesus coming back, he could be saying, Jesus come back and he could translate you like he did Enoch and Elijah. Or you may die before he comes back. Either way, either way, faith triumphs. Either way. Today, Jesus could come back tomorrow. Or not. Either way, faith triumphs. He finally comes to the last, we get to the last principle that we see here in, in verse 6. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For the one who approaches God must believe that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. This is the principle that he's going to be developing the rest of the chapter. That without faith, it's impossible to please him. It's not heroism. It's not all the great accomplishments. It's not planning ten churches. It's not being, being a president or, or a leader. It's faithfulness that seems to please God. And he, we believe that he exists, and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. This is the anchor that he builds his chapter on. If Satan wants to drive a wedge between us and God, he'll do it one of three ways. He will, first of all, try to convince us that God does not exist. Or then he'll, convince, he'll try to convince us that if he does exist, you can't find him. And if you do find him, he can care less. He's not that interested in being found. And Hebrews is saying just the opposite, that he does exist. That he wants to be found, and he can be found. He, in fact, he rewards those who seek him. Now, Sue asked me this weekend, well, what does it mean by rewards? Well, I don't know exactly. <laughs> All I know is it's good. And I think this is the rewards that he was talking about through the whole book that he calls the Sabbath rest, that he calls the inheritance, that he calls the hope. The Bible doesn't really get that specific of what that looks like. We talk about throwing crowns down before the throne, but I'm sure they're metaphorical crowns. I mean, I used to joke with Katie when she would do something good. I would just say, well, there's another jewel for your crown. I doubt it was a literal crown. But it's good. Its inheritance is a Sabbath. The question is, when, is he looking for heroics or is he looking for faith? If you look at the literature of the ancient world before the Old Testament, before the New Testament was written, it goes all the way back to Aristotle and the Iliad and the Odyssey and even further back than that. They loved the hero stories. Judaism, Greek culture, Roman culture, and yes, our culture. We love hero stories. We worship our heroes sometimes. And our heroes can be all kinds of, it can be uh, military heroes. Those are the guys that, you know, that put their life on the line for the greater good. Lately, we've been talking about medical heroes, people the, on the front lines, the doctors and the nurses who have risked their lives with the COVID and, and some have died because of it. So to help, to help people, to heal people. Those are real heroes. Uh, we have fantasy heroes. All you have to do is Google Comic-Con and, uh, and see all the people dressing up as their favorite heroes. 
Marvel has made billions of money on movies based on their comic books. We have sports heroes. I, I stumbled on the fact that they were televising the NFL draft this week. I can't think of any more boring thing than, than the, the NFL draft. And they show these crowds in their cities in Cleveland and Chicago and New York and Dallas all dressed in their jerseys and they would name the person and they would all cheer like they knew exactly who they were talking about. And they all cheer like, this is the guy that's going to lead us to the Super Bowl. Of course, that never happens. Not in my case anyway, not in the Cowboys' case. But that's, we, we worship this. I heard a comedian say, our obsession with sports. He says he doesn't understand our obsession with sports. He says, uh, sports is where we are watching genetically superior people do things that I could never do and then critique them. <laughs> I thought, That's exactly right. We watch genetically superior people, superior to me, it's things that I can't do, and then I criticize them for it. That's sports. But we have these heroes. But you look at the stories between the heroes and the, and the saints, and it's very different. Hebrews 11 is telling us something different. He's showing us saints, not heroes. Heroes, the story of hero, heroes, uh, they, they celebrate the hero himself or herself. The saint celebrates the story of God. The saint is almost in the margins. He almost is forgotten, really. But that's the one who pleases God. The story of Hebrews celebrates the attributes of the hero. The hero. You know, he's strong, he's clever, he's smart. You go through the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, it's just everything, they're all victorious. I'm, I'm the greatest. Well, the saint celebrates the qualities of God and of Christ. The saint may have qualities. He may be very smart. They may be clever. She may be, may be incredibly talented. But that's not the point. In fact, if you look through this chapter of Hebrews 11, you're going to see some people that are really seriously flawed. I mean, he calls Lot a righteous man. Where does he get that? They're seriously flawed people. A hero doesn't like failure, can't accept failure. A saint knows failure and seeks forgiveness and seeks repentance. Like Leonard Cohen says, in failure, he says, the light is shown through the cracks. Paul puts it this way. He says, Christ is glorified in our weaknesses. We understand failure. The Hebrew is all about, I mean, the hero is all about fame, his greatness, fame. I want fame. That's his reward. But Hebrews tells us that God is the rewarder of the saint, of the faithful. The hero stands alone in a crowd. The saint never stands alone, stands with God and stands with each other. You know, the, hero, the word hero does not appear in the New Testament, not once, but saints appears 64 times. And it's always in the plural. It's never the individual. It's always together. The hero will stand alone. 
And in spite of what pop psychology tells us, we're not all entitled to be heroes, but we can all be saints. Faith is beginning to see. Let's go ahead and go through these, Kendra, some ways to close up here. Believing is the beginning of seeing. I just want to mention a few things here. If we just click through the next one. Believing begins to see that God saw you first. We begin to understand that this big creator God that Hebrews talks about, that's bigger than the stars that Abraham gazed at that night, this big creator God is thinking of you. He takes notices of you. He sees you. He names you. He loves you. And that is an amazing moment. We call this oftentimes the moment of conversion. This is the moment when we realize that we almost cannot contain the joy that God loves us and gave himself up for us. Believing begins to see that God saw you first. Sometimes this moment is incredibly dramatic. Sometimes not. But usually it's a very overwhelming kind of feeling. Let's go to the second, next one. Be believing begins to see that creation for what it is. And I mentioned that before. We see the creation for what it is. It is God's astonishingly good gift to us. That when we anchor ourselves in it and find our big consolation in it, our love for it, our, our purpose for living in it, well then, ironically, it becomes disappointing. But when we accept it for what it is, then we can enjoy it. We can enjoy it for the gift that it is. Let's go to the next one. Believing begins to see God in the daily and in the mundane. The dramatic event of conversion, that, that, that moment when you know that God has taken notices of you, that's, a moment, that's an incredible moment. It's, it's oftentimes emotional. It's oftentimes dramatic. But that's not enough to sustain us. It's not enough to strengthen us. It's not enough to deepen us. But this begins to... These, I believe that these spiritual practices and these spiritual connections with God is, is available to us every minute of every day. And these are the things that strengthen us and deepen us. And we begin to see God in the daily and the mundane. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much I look forward to that sip of, sip of coffee in the morning. And, and that commercial, you know, best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup. I don't drink Folgers. I drink 10-speed. But having said that, um, I look forward to it every single morning. And I thank God for that. I mean, seeing, seeing that is just this wonderful gift. And we can see God in the daily and the mundane. And I mentioned before, I kind of tried to get started this practice of opening the dead drapes and saying, saying, God, thank you for this day that I did not create, and thank you for the grace I do not deserve. Little daily mundane things. That's what strengthens us. That's what maintains us. That's what sustains us. Let's go on to the next one. Believing begins to see that you love God back. Just like Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Well, now once we get in we, we, and we start to see, we start to believe, we start to trust, he's asking us, do you love me back? I love you, do you love me back? And the last one is connected to that. Believing means continually saying yes to God's reality. Yes, 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 all the time. This is real. God's reality, God's kingdom is real, and we continually say yes to that. It's no mistake to me that one of the common uh, pictures that the Bible uses to describe the relationship between Christ and the church is a marriage. And we 
<clears throat> when we enter a marriage, we really don't know what that's going to be like. When we're walking down that aisle or we're saying our vows before the justice of the peace or the preacher, whoever, we really don't know what that's looked like until we completely give ourselves to that commitment. That we really don't know what that looks like and what it feels like until really death does separate us. But on the other side, on the other side, we will never know what, it, what it's like if we enter this kind of relationship and keep everything at arm's length. If we enter a marriage but not really give ourselves to it, that we enter a marriage but because of pride I'm going to try to keep my distance, we don't really know what that means. It's the same thing with faith. We can say yes, we can say the vow, or whatever, the prayer, or whatever, but until we give ourselves to it, we really don't know what that means, what belief means, what faith means. It means saying yes to reality.